You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a lecture by Dr. Rick Crownshaw from Goldsmiths, University of London. His lecture, Climate Change, Literature and the Future of Memory, was given as part of Plotting the Future Towards Sustainability, Environment, Society, Economy. This public lecture series is a joint initiative of four research institutes at UCD. The Earth Institute, the Geary Institute for Public Policy, the Humanities Institute and the Institute for Discovery. For more information, go to future.ucd.ie. I'm very pleased to be here. My thanks to, to Anne Fuchs and Tasman Crowe and William Fitzmaurice for their kind invitation to participate in this series on plotting the future and exploring sustainable environments. So, the designation of the new geological epoch in which we find ourselves, the Anthropocene, following the work of Paul J. Crutzen and Eugene F. Sturmer, has from its origins in the sciences gained remarkable traction across the academic disciplines in the last few years. Taking a geological turn, the humanities have begun to explore, assess and theorise the limits and possibilities of representations of life <clears throat> in this epoch defined by the primacy of human agency as a geophysical force and characterised most readily by anthropogenic climate change and also legible, of course, in the geological record of a changed planet left behind by humanity. The humanities, and more specifically literary and cultural studies, have been taking stock of the cultural resources available to understand the catastrophic conditions that render life, be it human or non-human, and its environments precarious, if not unsustainable and devastated through the effects of climate change, energy insecurities, the potential and realisation of species extinction, unprecedented levels of pollution, waste and toxicity, and the social disintegration brought about by the depletion of resources. Those cultural resources include the emergent and growing genre of climate change fiction. So this evening, I want to talk about what role literature, and more specifically the novel, might have in thinking through and indeed in plotting environmental futures. In this particular context, the value and significance of literature can be found in its articulation of different experiences and histories of the Anthropocene. As such, the novel is able to contribute to debates as to whose and which experiences and histories are we speaking of when we speak of the Anthropocene. For, of course, the problem with the Anthropocene is the assumption that it is a universal and homogenous experience or category. So how do we particularise and pluralise our current geological epoch? Well, here literature can play its part as a carrier of memory, contributing to the cultural remembrance of how the Anthropocene came about. Whether that remembrance takes place in the present or, as I'll be discussing later on, in the future or a projected future. Now, in discussing literature and literary memory, I will mainly talk about theories and concepts, but a few textual examples will no doubt creep in, and probably from novels you will not have read, but rest assured I'll be descriptive, general and brief at those points in the lecture. 
what I hope to work towards is the idea that before we can think about a sustainable future, we have to remember the Anthropocene's past more adequately. Otherwise, sustainability will simply mean sustaining the fossil-fueled political and ideological and economic regimes that inform our current predicament, its past, or pasts, and possible futures. In discussing the relationship between literature and the Anthropocene, though, it might be useful to introduce some recent critical scepticism regarding the novel in the face of the climate crisis. So moving forward from this criticism, which I'll get onto in a second, I think that will help illuminate and entrench what literature is capable of rather than its incapacities. So I want to start with Amitav Ghosh's The Great Derangement of 2016, by way of noting some sceptical reactions to climate-related literature. Now, The Great Derangement is concerned with literary narratives' inability to capture the, uh, the improbability and unpredictability of extreme climatic events. Gosh argues that the novel is not able to apprehend climate change because of its historical organisation, which, uh, following the work of Franco Moretti, um, which he, he relies on quite heavily, which dates to the ideological work undertaken by the novel in the 19th century. Then the novel contributed to the regularisation of life that was unfolding across the political, economic, social and cultural spheres of modernity and modernisation. Historically, the novel did this through its narratorial management of exceptional or differential events, events that actually drove the plot. And it regularised those, it organised those by filling the gaps between them with mimetic descriptions of the unexceptional and the everyday. So in this sense, realisms, or novelistic realisms, gradualist plot, plots rather, paralleled the gradualist thinking in geology in the 18th and 19th century, represented by, for example, the likes of Charles Lyell and James Hutton, thinking that had superseded catastrophist ideas that had organised geological time around a series of unique and cataclysmic events. The privileging of the extraordinary, both in geological and literary narrative, was vanquished to what was seen as pre-modern and fabulous thinking, in terms of literature, uh, to the subgenres of the Gothic, the romance, melodrama, science fiction, horror, fantasy, to where today the exceptional still seems to be outhoused, according to Gosh. The legacies of gradualism in literature and scientific thinking have uh, ill-equipped narrative to deal with climate change. So referring to the meteorologist Adam Sobel's analysis of Hurricane Sandy, Gosh notes that the hurricane's path was recognised as a theoretical possibility using dynamic models based on the law of physics and so on and various data sets recorded over the years, but its occurrence was statistically improbable. So what happened? It veered westward in the mid-Atlantic to merge with a winter storm and then to crash into the eastern seaboard, generating historically unprecedented storm surges for that reason. Gosh argues that a narrative or a gradualist narrative disposition in literature or science cannot inform the social transitions necessary to prefer, prepare for and mitigate the paroxy uh, paroxysmal nature of climate change. 
The irony is, of course, that the causes of climate change are unexceptionable. The daily routines of fossil fuel consumption and emission of greenhouse gases are the stuff of realism. So a model literature shaped by the legacies of 19th century realism not only folds the slow, unexceptional causes of climate change back into a narrative that strives to regulate the exceptional, but contains the catastrophe that inheres in and erupts from the unexceptional and fails to articulate or enunciate the relationship between ordinary cause and extreme effect. Now, I think that this um, contribution to the debate over climate literature rather, uh, I think, deploys a rather nebulous notion of serious modern literature and tends to discount a whole range of, of literary attempts to deal with the climate crisis. So, in other words, its, narrow, it's focus is, is simply too narrow. The vagaries of this definition aside, I think he seems to be looking in the wrong places and sometimes in the wrong times for a more capable literature. And we should also mention that he completely um, dismisses the potential of genre fiction, which I'll talk about later on. We might immediately counter Gosch's critical scheme by defining literature as an archive of climate. For example, we might engage in what I've described here as an inversive hermeneutics, hermeneutics um, in which foreground becomes background and background becomes foreground. As the weather and its environmental contexts take centre stage, becomes a protagonist rather than just a metaphor or backdrop for human drama. And where its literal as well as figurative presence in literature is a materialisation of what Jesse Oak Taylor describes as the climates of history no matter how mediated. So having rescued literature, at least for the time being, from the pessimism of literary criticism and seen uh, a glimpse of, of uh, hope and capacity in it, I think I need to build on this idea of an archival function. Um, and I want also to think about the relationship between archives and the future. Now, in the fiction of climate change, there has been an increasing turn towards the future anterior the dramatisation of that which will have been in the literary imagination of near future, sorry, near future or mid-future and far-future scenarios of catastrophe and post-catastrophe. Whether the future plotted is post-apocalyptic and characterised by socio-economic and ecological, ecological collapse and species extinction, or whether it's one of resilience and adaptability and sustainability, or somewhere in between, these fictions stage cultural memories of the Anthropocene. And so an etiology of the conditions that are imagined in the future, but which are unfolding in the present of this literature's production and consumption. So let's bear that in mind. And let me add to this by thinking not just of sort of a literary memory of the Anthropocene projected into the future, but perhaps more broadly of a memory studies for the Anthropocene and what that might mean. Let's first establish the pertinence of remembrance in this geological context. As I think it captures the dynamic of the past's uh, return and intrusion upon the present. As Christophe Bonnet and Jean Baptiste Fresot argue, it is delusional to regard the conceptualization of the Anthropocene as a period of awakening to the radical changes in Earth systems, to the precarity of species, be they human or non human, and their environments, to levels of waste, toxicity, and pollution, and social disintegration brought about by resource and energy depletion and redistribution. For, they argue, the inception of the Industrial Revolution also marked the inception of knowledge of its environmental consequences, planetary thinking about such matters and prognoses 
as to what industrially driven environmental futures might look like. However, this was knowledge that would soon be subsumed by the ascendancy and prevalence of ideas of security, prosperity, liberty, and the instrumentalization of nature and freedom from its determinants. These ideas and their realization were, of course, predicated on a fossil fueled modernity. So, the Anthropocene describes the return and remembrance of something like knowledge historically dissociated, but what returns is not just cultural matter, but also biological, physical and chemical matter, as socio-economic modifications of Earth systems, and indeed biophysico-chemical modifications of the socio-economic, manifest themselves cumulatively and latently. With the generation of feedback loops and the thresholds of systemic tipping points crossed, geohistory is anything but linear and progressive. For example, the courses of the afterlives of greenhouse gases are difficult to predict with precision, but they nonetheless belatedly disrupt modernities and post-modernities progress. No matter how pertinent the idea of memory and memory studies might be for the Anthropocene in this context, let us for a moment dwell upon the current orientations of cultural memory studies and its current capacities. Now, the theorization of cultural memory um, has, uh, over the last 10 to 20 years, certainly taken a global turn. No longer contained by the idea that memory is the property of discrete groups and their experiences, of discrete groups and their experiences of the past, be they local, regional or national. Uh, no, long no longer contained by the idea that remembered experience can always be neatly located within political, social or cultural borders. Memory, along with the technologies of memory, the cultural artefacts that represent and prompt remembrance, that carry remembrance, and the witnesses of remembered experiences, or indeed those who remember things without having witnessed them, well, all of those things travel. And in doing so, they enter into generative dialogues with other memories and other carriers of memories. As memory travels, so must cultural memory studies in tracking the itinerant and emergent nature of memory, a memory that does not respect borders, put it another way. Nevertheless, the itinerary of memory and memory studies are still bounded by the humanist enclosures of memory work, identified by, for example, Tom Cohen. For Cohen, the critic Cohen, mourning theory, as he terms cultural memory and trauma studies, is preoccupied with the defence of cultures, affects, bodies and others through their reconstruction in representations of the past. Now, in his uh, critique of the, of the predilections of memory studies, Cohen rounds on the work of Judith Butler and Judith Butler's use of the future anterior to frame lives from their beginnings as grievable and so sustainable by that regard. Grievable, life is recognised as potentially precarious, and in the event of that precarity would be recognised and remembered as life. In other words, an anticipatory future remembrance recognises life as life, and so worthy of remembrance. This scheme of remembrance secures what Cohen describes as political and epistemological homelands, political in the sense that exclusive human habitats, systems, or territories are imagined, and so delimited in memory and memory work. Epistemological in the sense of our modes of cognition, as Cohen puts it, that cannot perceive and think beyond those delimitations. 
So for Cohen, that means uh, deferring, addressing ecological precarity and catastrophe, uh, summed up by Cohen as uh, biospheric collapse, mass extinction events and resource wars. In essence, this critique is of memory, uh, sorry, mourning theories in Cohen's words, or memory studies, failure to think ecologically, to apprehend the disastrous imbrications of human and non-human worlds. To move beyond um, a humanist perspective and horizon is to recalibrate the scales of memory studies, uh, and then we can turn our attention to how the Anthropocene might be remembered. As we have discussed in relation to the Anthropocene's belatedness, the very idea of an anthropogenic, catastrophic environmental event, the very idea of its eventness needs to be rethought, given the ways that such events unfold unevenly across time and space. Their slowly violent effects often dislocated temporarily and spatially from their causes. And in the example of climate change, the feedback loops of which turn effects into causes of further climatic transformation. And with atmospheric thresholds crossed and tipping points met, those transformations can be dramatic, sudden, seemingly stochastic, not necessarily predictable and anything but gradual. More generally, in the, as Rob Nixon would put it, slow as well as fast violence of environmental catastrophe, human activity sets in motion a chain of action. The environment itself is lent uh, an emergent catastrophic agency that exceeds human control. As Jane Bennett argues, this is the capacity of things to act as quasi-agents or forces with trajectories, propensities or tendencies of their own, which means that the locus of agencies, of agency, sorry, is always a human, non-human working group, an ad hoc assemblage. So although there is a geological record that demarcates the epochal shift to the Anthropocene, the remembrance of this epoch must also apprehend the epoch's emergent and mutating materialities, not just its discrete sedimentations. Thinking expansively across space and time, matter and life, and the multi-scalar reference of climate change calls for a derangement, as uh, Tim Clark might put it, of our habitual scales of cognition, remembrance, and representation. Now, Clark, in calling for this derangement of how we might uh, represent and think of climate change and the Anthropocene more generally, um, works this problem through um, literary criticism and the capacities of the novel. Now, he's incredibly ambivalent I think, about the residual uh, humanism of the novel genre in terms of its dramas and plots and senses of time and space. However, he advocates reading simultaneously within multiple and contradictory frameworks. In other words, reading the novel in terms of its cultural significance and also its geological significance. So these frameworks constitute a sort of tense co-present uh, presence. We have to read through both of those frameworks because um, if we remove the novel from its immediate context of production and reception, then literature would make little sense in relation to the potentially incomprehensible because scaled up and as yet unknown, because the Anthropocene is emergent, frameworks of the geological. The novel genre's significance then perhaps lies in its dislocation of the Anthropocene. 
Mark McGurl might agree, describing this kind of hermeneutics as a dialectics of expansion and contraction. Rendering the Anthropocene culturally meaningful, this dialectical approach recognises the ways that culture is simultaneously grounded and ungrounded by the geological. The remaindered latent meaning always anterior and posterior to moments of cultural production and reception. Now, the reconceptualization and recalibration of a more capacious cultural memory studies, I think, helps us to reframe and find an expansive potential in literature. But I think here a cautionary note. The mantra that we find uh, in eco-criticism at the moment for a derangement of our scales of cognition and representation um, in our literary theory and practice, um, I think risks overlooking the ways in which the Anthropocene is ideologically, politically and culturally constructed. As we shall see, reading and writing the climate is bound up with remembering its causes, uh, but what is remembered is mediated by uh, texts relation to the hegemonies that have lubricated a fossil-fueled capitalist modernity and its extractive histories and practices. So um, I think reading, I hope, climate-related fiction will reveal attachments to and implications in energy regimes normally subject to cognitive dissonance in the present. Uh, it will reveal, I hope, something akin to, for example, Stephanie LeManager's concept of petromelancholia, in other words, an inability to think beyond a dependency on oil in everyday life. It will reveal something like Michael Rothberg's idea of the implicated subject situated between perpetration and victimization in a climate-changed world. And implicatedness here describes, I think, our contributions to an emissive society, the way we variously uh, are the maleficiaries and the beneficiaries of energy regimes. A recalibrated cultural memory studies then when framing climate-related texts, I think not only attends to questions of scale, but also attends to the way in which uh, the Anthropocene is mediated when remembered or when its causes are remembered. Now, just to, to sort of go back uh, a little way in terms of the evolution of, of memory studies as we know it today, I just want to, to flag up something that Susanna Radstone uh, cautioned us about uh, during the ascendancy of memory studies at the beginning of this century. Uh, amidst the privileging of overly subjective and personalised renditions of recollection, um, amidst that over-personalisation, um, I think she reminded us that the study of cultural remembrance needs to pay attention to the often overlooked discourses that mediate and authorise memory. Discourses that may not be inherently memorative themselves. And I think that caution is still pertinent in the context of the Anthropocene. Um, it's Personant in, its, in the context of the Anthropocene, its speculative remembrance or the remembrance of the Anthropocene and personant to literary and cultural criticism. Because, of course, it is the very role and practice of cultural memory studies to understand memory's constructiveness of the past. So let me then turn to two examples of the ways that literature stages the mediation of the memory of the Anthropocene. And in particular, I'm looking at uh, speculative fiction here uh, and remembrance projected into the future. 
So these are brief examples of fiction that represent uh, near-future worlds affected to varying degrees by climate change. And today I'll, I'll briefly look at the work of Nathaniel Rich and Paolo Bacigalupi. So let me begin with Odds Against Tomorrow, uh, Nathaniel Rich's novel of 2013. Um, set in a catastrophic near future, the plot of Odds Against Tomorrow centres on the calculation and prediction of worst-case scenarios, calculated and predicted, that is, by the future futurist Mitchell Zuckel. Uh, calculated, predicted, and made profitable, I should say, by the futurist Mitchell Zuckel. Uh, and the plot then turns to what happens when one of his scenarios, the landfall of a hurricane on the northeastern seaboard, actually materialises. Working for Future World, Zuckel pitches possible scenarios of intertwined environmental, geopolitical and economic disaster to potential corporate clients and induces sufficient fear to persuade them to insure and, and indemnify themselves against legal claims to their liabilities in the face of the human costs of catastrophe. As Ben Dibley and Brett Nielsen have argued, the financialization of the risk of environmental catastrophe and the management of the perception of risks of risk creates an actuarial imaginary by which organisations and institutions and indeed nations that perceive themselves at risk and which are financially enabled can preempt and financially survive catastrophe while participating in and maintaining the fossil fuel economy structurally responsible for the catastrophes that befell them in the first place. As Dibley and Nielsen put it, the actuarial imaginary affects not only the prevention of the trauma of the unmediated future, but of the trauma of a future that does not have its resolution in protection and profit. In this novel, it's not 9-11 that organises the trauma, the trauma paradigm uh, for its 21st century America, but environmental catastrophe, the escalation of which subsumes the impact and indeed memory of the terrorist attacks. Environmental or geo-trauma, given its financialization and commodification, though, continues the political and ideological orchestration of trauma, continues that, uh, the construction of related notions of victimhood and the securitization of the idea of a homeland uh, that was all registered in the cultural remembrance of 9-11. As David Palumbo Lee argues, in a post-9-11 America, the failure of the war on terror to shore up the national fantasy of American democratic and moral exceptionalism led to the appropriation of other threats against which the homeland could be seen as vulnerable and then preemptively strengthened, thereby securing national identity. Climate change served the purposes of hegemonic affirmation. As Robert Marzek puts it, post 9-11, the nation-state collective fantasy of homeland security evolved into a new planetary ecological state fantasy of natural security, or an eco-security imaginary. Securing the environment became the means of securing the state at home and abroad, given the relation between climate change, resource scarcity, conflict and terrorism. So, in this novel then, uh, and in our real world, the resolution of the future in protection and profit it's not just a matter of forecasting and speculating on that future. It is also a matter of backcasting from those forecasts, of imagining future pasts and thereby how the future was arrived at. 
Speculation on environmental catastrophe or financialized scenario planning generates speculative narratives structured by the particularities of what may happen and why. But those narrated events and their contingencies need at the same time to be rendered abstract in order to be commodified and fungible. In other words, the events of an imagined future and the events imagined leading up to that future need to be configured in monetary terms in order to be insured or hedged against. Such forecasting and backcasting, therefore, removes climate from its historical specificity. Uh, and as I said, makes climatic events fungible, exchangeable, commodifiable. I think it's, it's these mediations of speculative memory that odds against tomorrow foregrounds and attempts to navigate as it attempts to remember climate and the Anthropocene more generally in terms outside of the teleologies of finance capitalism. So I want to move on to my next example, which is uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's uh, novel The Water Knife of 2015. I'll briefly describe that as well. Um, this novel is set in a near-future Arizona in a climate-changed, drought and dust-storm-ridden American Southwest, when the idea of nation has undergone dramatic reconfiguration and where real political, economic and paramilitary power lies with state water authorities, which operate as capitalist corporations. By controlling the flow of water into and across state sovereign territory, often nefariously through espionage and paramilitary means, these corporations literally control life and death therein, exacerbating and accelerating the prevailing conditions of anthropocenic in ecological collapse and turning Americans into climate refugees. The convoluted plot of the water knife centres around three characters and their focalised narratives as their stories converge in the search for an historical artefact, a document containing uh, so-called senior water rights, originally sold in the 19th century by the Pima tribe to the state of Arizona, and now sought after by rival water authorities of California, Arizona and Nevada. Worth killing for, the murderous pursuit of these rights and the characters who find them drives the plot. Not only a plot device, this document and its archival origins references a history of ethnic cleansing and genocide that prefaces the territorial violence committed over the natural resources of the novel's present setting. In fact, that violence is broadly continuous with the ecological nature of 19th century internal colonialism, in which the annexation and settlement of lands fundamentally affected existent ecosystems and environmental conditions. In turn, the so-called settlement of the West is rooted in the colonisation of the eastern seaboard in the 17th century, which Simon Lewis and Mark Maslin have recently argued uh, is a possible inception date for the Anthropocene, and I'll talk about that later on. So this long ecological history of settlement is not so much in plotted, but subject to the protagonist's cultural memory work. This, then, is memory work from a speculative future of an unfolding Anthropocene, which, although implotted in generic formula, is potentially capacious in its apprehensions of the ecological dimensions of settlement. The generic convolutions of plot affords the diegetic space and time for such memory work, also allowing the narrative to unfold the quotidian embodied experience of living through the drought and dust storms of a climate-changed American Southwest. The unwashed bodies and clothes encrusted with dirt, the thirst, the cough from pneumoconiosis, and the necessity of drinking recycled urine with its ammonia reek, 
the potential exposure to airborne fungal diseases thriving in this climate. Um, and in the absence of a domestically tapped supply, a reliance on public water pumps installed by the Red Cross, but from which water has to be purchased at a variable market rate. Therefore, uh, through these variations and uh, journeys of the plot, uh, what we have uh, conveyed to us is the embodied experience of the biopolitical regime that governs life under such conditions. Bringing an outsider's critical perspective in their respective ways, the three protagonists' experiences are differentiated according to their socioeconomic standing. But the experience of heat, dust, dirt, thirst is always foregrounded in this literary phenomenology. What's more, the body in Bachelupi's work speaks volumes about climate change, or to be more precise, materialises ecological memory. Localised bodies in all their precarity give way to a commentary on the progression or regression of the human species. The narrative's frequent allusions, allusions to 19th century discourses of manifest destiny, provide an ironic cultural context for measuring the decline of the human species. The novel, along with those in it, thereby remembers the ways the ecological repercussions of settler colonialism were, ideologically, sorry, were ideologically subsumed by the idea of manifest destiny, but also reminds us that such ideologies of progress can no longer contain the ecological realities of the 21st century, both within the world of the novel and outside it. Indeed, the novel charts the inversion of Manifest Destiny as yet another city falls, its water supply cut off by paramilitary and corporate means, its population rendered precarious and transformed into climate refugees in the droughty conditions of an environmentally devastated Arizona. This is the, is the next in the long line of the collapse of American cities and the forced migration of their citizens due to extreme weather and dwindling resources. These catastrophes inspire a futurial archaeological imaginary as characters wonder what it might be like to look back as a future archaeologist on the remnants of their present. Just as the characters um, uh, of this 21st century look back on the ruins of the Hohokam civilization, inherent in these speculations is the possibility of human extinction an idea gaining purchase in the novel's various cultural and social arenas, and which is popularly expressed in these kinds of archaeological terms. Now, Batch-Galupi's novel constantly reminds us of the ways in which the unfolding catastrophe of the Anthropocene is mediated, not least by the form and genre of this science fiction slash detective novel itself. The investigation of murdered bodies are narrative devices to propel the plot towards the discovery uh, or exhumation of, miss of a missing body of historical knowledge concerning the territorial politics and the capitalism of water in a climate change world and a wider ecological history of the Southwest. In turn, the unfolding plot stages precarious bodies as effective registers of the Anthropocene that compel their historicization. A historicization is certainly confined to the expressive potential of genre fiction. Within that fiction, the precarity of the body and the wider ecological collapse to which it contributes is rarely glimpsed outside of media, of the media sorry, of the media ecology foregrounded by the professional activities of various characters. Whilst mostly digital, the media ecology extends to the archival world of the story, um, and indeed also of our own historical world. So, for example, the archives of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Reclamation, 
and the US Army Corps of Engineers, in which those historical water rights are actually found. That ecology also includes an intertextual reference uh, to a 20th century history of the hydrology and settlement of the Southwest, the book Cadillac Desert, which is both a plot device, at one point the water rights are hidden in it, and also another means of historicizing the Anthropocene itself. Ultimately, this media ecology implicates the novel itself that stages these acts of memory from the future, which, which also engages us in speculative memory work. In many ways, the novel's generic ending, driven by individualistic human desire, rather than an eco-historical consciousness, is to be expected. And that is Bacalupi drawing us once again to the mediations of a memory text. So, in this speculative memory work, um, this uh, remembrance from a projected future uh, which uh, reveals how the, the Anthropocene has unfolded, we have two types of mediation at work. Um, Nathaniel Richards' Odds Against Tomorrow um, foregrounds or stages the struggle to think of the Anthropocene outside of the terms of capitalism, and particularly finance capitalism, so speculation there in, um, in uh, financial terms. The water knife, I think, constantly draws attention to its own genre, to its own literariness, to the, the fact of mediation itself. So both of these texts, to a great degree, wear mediation on their sleeves. But no matter all these mediations, uh, no matter its mediation so far, the Anthropocene staged by these literary texts, and indeed my theorization of them, is perhaps rather homogenizing. While our new geological epoch is defined by the primacy of the human species' geophysical agency in altering the planet's chemistry, this definition presupposes the Anthropos in the age of the human as a universal subject, an undifferentiated victim and or perpetrator of planetary environmental transformation and its repercussions. As Catherine Yusof has argued, this universalization subsumes the racial implications of geography itself, and uh, sorry, of geology itself and of geolog geological thinking before uh, geolo geology cohered into a scientific discipline. For example, in her argument, the continuities between the extractive practices, logics, and semiotics of colonial settler societies and their post-colonial counterparts up to the present day has been masked by a geological insistence on isolating historical signatures of epochal change in the Earth's strata. To put that simply, the prevailing assumption is that geological thinking has always been ideologically neutral, that it has not been complicit in historical violence, and that its identification of epochal markers is not potentially an act of forgetting other contexts of the Anthropocene. In reality, the geologics of the colonial extraction of resources from the lithosphere and biosphere, that is, from people, animals, plants, and what lies beneath the surface, has generated distinctions between what is deemed human and inhuman, what belongs to a particular place and what is extractable. In other words, what or who, because supposedly inhuman, can be uprooted along with the resources beneath their feet. These distinctions, or indeed conflations, that see people as an extractable resource have informed slavery and continue to inform what or rather who can soak up industrial toxicity and who can act as a barrier to hurricanes as in, for example, the racialized disaster 
of Hurricane Katrina, and I'll talk about that in a second. So thinking with Yusuf, I think we need to broaden our understanding of the Anthropocene's inception, as well as the very instruments we use to determine its origins. Such a reconceptualization foregrounds the mediating work of geology and its ideological and political implications. And what is at, what is at stake, as in what is remembered and what is forgotten, in decisions over geological inception dates. The Anthropocene Working Group's identification of the radioactive isotopes in the planet's sedimentary layers of the post-1945 period, particularly after 1950, establishes the Anthropocene's inception, the era of atomic warfare and testing, aligned with the beginnings of the great acceleration of oil extraction and consumption. It establishes that inception date through an insistence on the physical purity of the lithographic inscription. In other words, the physical purity or, or, or the, the, the utter legibility of this inscription upon the planet of human activity. Now, the problem is uh, that the Anthropocene Working Group's claim is really a matter of semiosis as well as sedimentation. No matter the material evidence, the discursive shaping of sediment into a signature of human activity can overwrite less legible, less consistent inscriptions of planetary histories. The legibility of the signature can fade other planetary histories, in other words, the material inscriptions of which are less consistently legible. What is more, the multiscolarity, the multicausality of the Anthropocene's phenomena that entangle the physical and chemical and biological and cultural and social cannot be necessarily localised into one signature. So in other words, we need to interpret uh, these inscriptions upon the Earth's strata, uh, this archive of human activity, if you will. We need to interpret the, the geological record, not only geologically, but also culturally. The Anthropocene is indeed a matter of memory, but more so of the politics of memory. And that might explain the debate surrounding the argument for the Anthropocene's inception that date it to 1610. Simon Lewis and Mark Maslin's uh, location of the beginnings of our current epoch in around 1610 um, really is informed by the planetary drop in CO2 levels, a marked drop due to the massive reduction of the North American indigenous population uh, and the consequent decline in indigenous agricultural practice and the resulting regrowth of previously cleared forest. This decline was, of course, brought about by smallpox and genocidal violence introduced to the continent by colonialism. This time also marked the irreversible reordering of the continental biosphere through the transatlantic importation of fauna, flora and agricultural systems. So, in working towards my conclusion, I want then uh, to consider one example of what Donna Haraway would argue as staying with the trouble. So in comparison with speculative fiction's departures for environmental futures, this is dwelling in the Anthropocene, catastrophe already lived. Staying with the trouble rather than looking towards the future casts the present literary trend for the future anterior catastrophes that will have happened in a critical light for what such futurism might forget. So my final example is Jesmyn Ward's uh, novel of 2011, Salvage the Bones. So towards the end of this novel, um, its teenage protagonist, uh, African-American protagonist and narrator, Esh, visits in the aftermath 
Um, visits in the aftermath uh, of Hurricane Katrina at the nearby town of St. Catharines, Mississippi. There, amidst the ruins, she declares her intention to remember the destruction through which she has lived and to narrativize it. I palm a piece of glass, marble blue and white, blunt at the edges, grab another piece that is red and pink, brick stone. I slip all three into my pockets. This was a liquor bottle, I will say, and this, this was a window, this a building. That the novel's chapters count down to the hurricane's landfall together with this concluding testimonial declaration following the consequent destruction, suggests the novel was always going to be a form of testimony or eco-testimony, um, and one that would be expressed through uh, materiality at that. Um, before I return to the novel, let me just contextualise the hurricane a little. Uh, the failure of the state to protect its citizens, particularly the racialized poor, against the hurricane and the success of the state in pathologizing those who survived the storm was the latest modulation of a long history of racial oppression that had generated political non-belonging, non-belonging, a reduction to bare or biological life, or put another way, disposability. But Katrina did not just reveal disposability in the dispossessed, the abandoned and the dead in evidence when the floodwaters receded. Rather, the history of Katrina's formation and, bim- and impact as a manifestation of anthropogenic climate change, became entangled with onshore histories of racialized oppression. This then is a co-emergence, a co-constitution of histories of climate and race. Correspondingly, Ward's characters, her protagonist included, are described and uh, perceive and imagine themselves in processes of becoming something other, of becoming animal, or in the process of evisceration, of imagining their interiority, being exteriorized, of uh, of being porous and pervious. In short, these characters are increasingly indistinguishable from their surrounding environment. It's organic and inorganic matter, animals, humans, the weather, the tritus of impoverished life, and post-hurricane ruination. Here then, in this novel, subjectivity is always found to be breaking its bounds oscillating between the world of subjects and objects, a constant state of unbecoming, environmentally dispersed, or more accurately put, ecologically constituted. There are various ways of theorising this, but for now we might describe this after Stacey Alamo's concept um, as a form of transcorporeality. Transcorporeality, as Alamo defines it, is uh, the way in which the body moves through the environment at the same time environments move through the body. Or we might refer to the work of Karen Barad and describe this as a form of intra-relationality uh, between the so-called natural world and the social, the non-human and the human, a kind of co-emergence of being, if you like. Or we could turn to the work of Y. Chi Dimmock here. To paraphrase Y. Chi Dimmock, we can no longer place the disposable bodies of the American South within a national history. Those bodies, that history, have been flooded, breached by histories that are, I quote, oceanic rather than territorial. As Dimmock argues, hurricanes are indexes to a planetary, uh, already damaged hydrology that makes it clear that climate, geology, and human and non-human life are all complexly intertwined, part of the same fluid continuum. To modify Dimmock's remark, what is embodied in Ward's novel is the intersection of planetary histories of climate and more localised histories of disposability in the American South. These porous bodies are testament to an Anthropocene that is rooted in the history of slavery and the geologics that determined what was human.
and what was inhuman. So, by, by way of conclusion then, or in conclusion rather, the literary employment of the Anthropocene, when framed by a recalibrated cultural memory studies, can stage and provoke the remembrance of our geological epoch. Um, <clears throat> by remembering um, the causes of the Anthropocene, we can possibly plot uh, future sustainability. But when we talk of implotting sustainable futures, what are we actually sustaining here? Are we sustaining a concept of the Anthropocene that overwrites the past in a conceptual orientation towards the future? As we see registered in national and international activism and political and media discourse, our attempts to mitigate the causes and effects of the Anthropocene and its most culturally pronounced characteristic climate change are centred on the urgency of present political and social opportunities to preempt future catastrophes. <clears throat> However, um, oriented otherwise, what this literature uh, and uh, this literature of memory can perhaps help us to understand is that the Anthropocene has already happened for many uh, as a part of a longer history that dates back to the extractivism of colonialism, not just, say, the Industrial Revolution. And so to reiterate, the literary implotment of the Anthropocene, Anthropocene when framed by recalibrated cultural memory studies can stage and provoke the remembrance of our cultural epoch, certainly. And in doing so, it can also sustain a self-reflexivity uh, in terms of the ways in which we conceive of the Anthropocene in the first place. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Plotting the Future podcast. You can listen to previous lectures in this series on the UCD Humanities Institute's website and on future.ucd.ie.